Hi, everyone. I'm Nate. And I'm Shelby. And welcome to Almost Heretical, the show for those questioning, deconstructing, or changing in their relationship to God, church, and the Bible. When we started questioning our faith, we felt alone and unequipped to handle the barrage of questions and verses that were being lobbed at us, both by Christian friends and often by our own minds. But when we began to examine the Bible from an academic perspective, we discovered that we weren't crazy and we might actually be onto something really beautiful. And we're here to help you navigate your own deconstruction, connect with others on this journey through our Facebook group and Zoom calls, and find a way forward built on a foundation of honesty and authenticity. We're so glad you're on this journey with us. Who are you? There's some days I think I know, and other days I don't. So I'll continue the necessary sifting to find what I've been missing. Hi, friends. Welcome to Almost Heretical. This show is for those of you who have some sort of an interest in the Bible. Maybe it's because of baggage from your past. Maybe you're just still asking some questions about it. Maybe you don't think the Bible is relevant to you at all anymore, but it still fascinates you somehow. That's what this show is all about. We call it Almost Heretical because we say some things on here that you're probably not allowed to say in church. We ask questions that you might not be allowed to ask in church or in your faith or religious communities that you might have been a part of in the past. That's what this show's all about, and we're so excited that you're with us today because we have a really special interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson. I am a huge Neil deGrasse Tyson fan for many years. I've read books of his, I've listened to lots of interviews, lots of talks he's given, and so this was a real big privilege for me to get to talk to Neil today. He's the director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. He's also the host of Star Talk Radio. That's a podcast. It's also a YouTube channel. I encourage you to check out both. And his latest book is Starry Messenger, Cosmic Perspectives on Civilization. And we get into a lot of that in this interview. We cover so much, like, is America actually a Christian nation? We talk about Neil's upbringing in Catholicism. And at the end, we kind of talk about time travel. And I ask Neil, if we went back in time, if that was possible someday, would we be able to see if Jesus actually rose from the dead or not? So buckle up. This is a real fun conversation. And if this is your first time ever listening to Almost Heretical, get in touch with us. Email us, contact at almostheretical.com. We want to know your story, your questions, and welcome you into this community. All questions are welcome. All people are welcome. And we're so excited you're here. Here's our conversation with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Well, Neil, so glad to have you on the show. This is a privilege and an honor. This is not just like I set this here for the interview. This is, I'm holding up astrophysics for people in a hurry right here on my desk right now. Actually, I think I think when Nate and I first met and were even getting to know each other, that was the book I got him for Christmas, the first Christmas we were together. So, so oh there you gosh. go. Oh my gosh, okay. Yeah. So, so a love cemented in the universe, right? That's what that is. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, and mm-hmm. it's this is where I want to start because this audience, almost heretical, a lot of former current Christians that are rethinking everything, right? I don't know if you're familiar with like the deconstruction movement with inside Christianity, but it's this idea of unpacking your religious Christian background that you had. Oftentimes it results in people leaving Christianity altogether. 
for those, a lot of those probably listening to this show, they have engaged and continue to engage in some way since we talk a lot about like the Bible and like, so they still care to an extent, but a lot of them, if they're similar to me and to Shelby, we grew up like not really being allowed to learn science. <laughs> like it sounds kind of crazy, but it was, it was not off limits in the sense of we're not going to let you, we're not going to teach this to you, but it was like, Hey, you know, when they say that the earth is this amount of years old, just remember what the Bible says, right? When they say X, just remember what, like it was always this. We were scared. I remember being scared of like scientific discoveries, right? Like if we find life on Mars, what is that going to, like, I don't even know what I was destroy our worldview or something. (laughs) Yeah. I don't even know what I was scared of, but okay. So to set the tone, I'm curious, your spiritual, religious background, is there any, any of that from like your family of origin? Did you have any of that as a young, at a young age, anything like that? Or was it, was it kind of void of all that? So I grew up in a Catholic family. Uh, my mother is Catholic. My father converted to Catholicism when they married. Uh, we went to church pretty much each Sunday. And even when we traveled, we'd find a church to go to if we happened to be away on Sundays. Uh, I, through third grade, I think it was, uh, I was sent on Wednesday afternoons to religious instruction. Mm-hmm. Uh, did they call that catechism? There's some word they yeah, used for it. So. Yeah. And so there was... Schools would let you out to to fulfill this this sort of religious obligation, and but thereafter, sort of after third grade, and I, because by the time I'm in fourth grade and fifth grade, I'm starting to think rationally about the universe. Wow, you you got started early. <laughs> yeah, after a first visit to the Hayden Planetarium, mm. and wow. saw the universe and the vastness of it and the infinite infinitude of it, and that was when I was nine. And so when, how old are you in third grade, maybe seven or eight, but in those years, it was what I was being told started making less and less sense to me. Mm. And, uh, plus as a family, we were not as rigid about going to church. So within a few years, we became, as they say, an ashes and palms Catholic, (laughs) where you go to church on, on the on the high holidays to borrow a Jewish term mm-hmm. and you know, Easter and Christmas and maybe one, one other few other times, my mother remains, um, uh, committed, I would say. Um, and, uh, but what matters here most is no decision in our household was ever made in reference to the Bible or any other religious text. Mm, So in other words, if there's a reason to do something or to not do something, parent to child, the argument was never, what would Jesus think? Mm. Or what would happen after we die? Or what would God do? It was, here's the reason. Okay, you could could get hurt doing this, or this this would have consequences in this other way. So decision making, which is part of how your brain gets wired, never had any spiritual or religious foundation to it in my household, in the, in my household growing up. Uh, that's so important. And I think, so that's a good way to describe our audience. Our audience would be the opposite of that, right? Would be the, the ones opposite. where- Okay, that's what I'm talking to. Okay. Almost every decision was that. And so they have now left that, right? They've now left those circles. There's where they've been rejected by their families. Which would be way harder to accomplish than anything I would have gone through mm-hmm. myself, right? Because- I didn't have to then detach myself from a family family principles or family mm. a mission statement. That's mm. right. So 
whatever it is required to make that happen has got to be pretty hard um, yeah. mm-hmm. on family relationships, on your emotions and, and the like. Um, I'm pretty Bible fluent, not for having grown up Catholic through age nine, but just because when I have conversations with religious people, it occurred to me that I should at least know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> or can I say right. that? What the hell? I'm, yes. I'm not yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, the podcast is called Almost Heretical, remember? So okay. So the Christians so, don't think we're Christian. I'll, I'll, I'll put it that way. Okay, right? gotcha. So, so I read, uh, so I started reading the Bible and other religious texts, um, you know, the, the writings of, of Joseph Smith, the, you know, uh, I read the, the tracts that they hand you, that Jehovah's Witness give you in the street. I, I the Torah. I have a, a few copies of the Quran, and so I I can't claim to have read every word of every one of these, but I've read enough to get a sense of where they're coming from. And then I would learn. I end up knowing more about it than most people than most people who claim to be religious out of those books. Yeah. So when I reach that threshold, I said, "Okay, I'm good to go here." <laughs> Start. Yeah. Go back to the science now. And what is certainly true is that I know more about your religion than you know about my science. Mm. That's cert- true in almost every case. Yeah. Mm. And so that in that way, I can have a conversation with people when they quote a Bible passage. In fact, in my latest book, which is not the one you held up, right. uh, latest is Starry Messenger, Cosmic Perspectives on Civilization, I make multiple references to the Bible. Uh, and in the role it has played in people's thinking about civilization and our place in it. And occasionally the clash of civilization with where civilization would otherwise go with Bible writings, others where there's resonance. Hmm. So I'm I've so that fluency enhances, I think, maybe it's not for me to judge, but I think it enhances my capacity as an educator to communicate with people all along the religious spectrum. I think it really does, because I was thinking about, you know, Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and even Bill Nye, like that there's, you know, you YouTube them or whatever, and you got these debates that they do with with Christians or with the religious people. And it really, I mean, from like my background in that world of Christianity, like it really does turn you off to that person, right? And you're just like, I'm not even going to listen to it. So I think you have had a way to you've had a way to like bridge this gap and like be the voice that's that scientist voice in the room for, for everyone. And I'm sure there are Christians out there that reject everything you say because you don't believe the earth is 6,000 years old or, or whatever it is. Right. Right. Interesting because I don't engage in debates hmm. just as a matter of principle. You've never seen, you see all of them, but you don't see me. That, right. There's a reason because I don't, <laughs> I, I, for me, debate has the construct that, one person or the other will win the debate mm-hmm. and by what way well if they're a little more charismatic if they're more likable if there are all these other factors that show up in whether someone quote wins a debate and there's an old saying it, i think it's mostly true i don't think it's 100 percent true but it's if an argument lasts more than five minutes then both sides are wrong wow there's some truth to that hmm. Because there's a limit to how much I'm going to argue with you if you're going to say Earth is flat. I'm not going to sit there free with you for an hour. I'm just not. All right. So that's one way the argument does not last more than five minutes. Um, and so, but beyond that, 
the truth should not be arrived at by who's more charismatic. Mm. It should never be the case. Now, you said that I bridged a gap. To me, it was never a gap. It was always a continuum. Mm. But I see what you mean when you say there's a gap, because these atheist versus religious people conversations, there's a gap there. And the atheist is not is not building a bridge to the religious people. All right. That I don't see that happening. Whereas I don't think I'm building a bridge. I, I, nor do I even think there's a bridge there. I just think there's a way to have this conversation hmm. where people can become enlightened by new information that's put on the table. And that's always a better place to be. And that makes sense, especially, I think, coming from the type of Christian upbringing that you described, where these things weren't really in conflict. Your religion, your faith was, it sounds like, not yeah, in conflict with your science. Well, well, well c- Catholicism is less Bible-thumping than mm-hmm. a con- conservative Protestantism. Yes, absolutely. Spoken broadly, of course. And not only that, the, the history of Catholicism, they don't make a big statement about this today. But it remains true today that the one of the main points of the priest is to interpret the Bible for you, especially coming from an era when most people were illiterate. So mm-hmm. you were not really supposed to read the Bible. <laughs> you can own one, but the, that what the priest never said, "Go home, read Luke five. you know th- th- none of that ever happened. Yeah, they read it to you while you're in church. So for me to have learned about the Bible was entirely my own doing. And I wasn't drawing upon um, lessons from Sunday school Mm -hmm. because that's not how that unfolded. So, so So that's the first point. Now, to say it wasn't in conflict, it's not because all of the religion that I was viewing said, we're cool with science. Mm. No, because in fact, at the time, Galileo had not yet been pardoned, oh, which wow. is something that yeah. occurred. <laughs> uh, was it 1992? That's how old I am. Gee. But um, so that took a while. All right. So, yes, there was conflict, but there wasn't conflict in the household. Mm. So that's the fundamental point I'm making here. And that being said, among enlightened religious people and or enlightened religious communities, they're perfectly fine with what science brings to the table. If you look at the the encyclicals of the Pope, you look at there's some documents written by Baptist um, uh, ministers. There, uh, I I was part of a panel for the National Science Foundation to produce a document to advise teachers on how to teach evolution, knowing that there are all these other forces going on around you, and appended to the back of that are statements that endorse evolution from major religious organizations, Hmm. which is a reminder to us that most of the conflict that we see and hear about is from a vocal minority of fundamentalist Christians. Yeah. And they have the bully pulpit and they, the press goes to them and they make better clickbait than someone who's just, yeah, I'm cool with it. That's not clickbait. But say, well, let's, you know, burn all gays and because that the Bible says so, then that somebody's going to click on that. And that voice gets louder and louder and louder. But it, it is from the pew polls that I've seen, the the small minority of total religious people, even those who would consider themselves devout. Right. 
Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. And that is an important point. I mean, something that we've come to on not just science, but so many different topics for for our audience, because I'd say Nate and I and many of the people of audience, we like we are we came from that minority. So that minority, of course, felt like everyone to us growing up. We thought that's what all Christians were. It's your neighbors. It's your friends. It's everyone you see in church. Yeah. And so to to kind of even just see like, oh, there's a bunch of religious groups that endorse evolution. Or when we look at other topics, we're like, oh, there have been, you know, Christians throughout history who haven't held to, you know, the doctrine of the Trinity the same way. Like there's, it's so permission. Isaac Newton among them, by the way, a religious Mm -hmm. man who held the Trinity in very high doubt. Well, well, uh, they got in go. trouble for that, of course, but yeah. <laughs> yes. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's just, it's, uh, it's really, I mean, of course, if you were to have said that to us in that time of our lives, that like, there's a bunch of Christians out there who support evolution, we would have just said, well, they don't really know their Bible and, or they're just they're you not know, caving. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're not caving. real Christians. Right. Yeah. Right. The whole construct is we versus they. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the more clever comebacks by that in the atheist community is you go to anyone who's religious and they'll tell you what their religion is. Okay. So let's say it's, let's say it's, it's a Baptist, fundamentalist Baptist, let's say. Okay. And they, and you say to them, uh, you know, the Catholics are weird, aren't they? They're like worshiping all these idols and think, yeah, they're Catholics. They're, that's not true Christianity. And how about, the Mormons, oh yeah, they're weird. They're but, but what would Jesus come? Not, and then you talk about Islam. Oh, this is this a false false prophet? It's not a real prophet. And they go down the list, and it is easy for them to reject every other religion but their own as being preposterous. And how about the Jews? Well, they don't. They, they didn't feel the. They didn't receive the word. They should have received the word. We have the word. The Jews are not in on. Okay. They can make an argument about every other religion while every other religion is making an argument against them mm-hmm. in the same way. So what the atheist says to the fundamentalist Protestant is, you are an atheist to every other religion, just as I am. The difference is, I've added one extra religion to that, and that's yours. Huh. You know, and I've come to, I've come to believe. You know, you, you talked about fundamentalist Baptists. I mean, somehow you nailed the, nailed it right on the head. <laughs> Literally, here with, yes. With us, and I think a lot of listeners, listeners of the show. But I've come to believe that you know these leaders, most of these leaders, when we talk about the majority, uh, aren't 
trying to, you know, you said burn the gays or whatever. They're not trying to like attack people and they're not trying to like hold these views that are like, I don't know, <laughs> like uh, hurtful to others. Let's say they are genuinely concerned about the heaven and hell thing. They're genuinely concerned about genuinely concerned about what happens after we die. And, and it, so I, I guess I'll give that to them. It's like, okay, if I truly believed, which I no longer believe that there was this eternal conscious torment that was going to happen at potentially any moment to you, me, Shelby, anyone listening to this, wouldn't it be crazy for me to not be talking about that all the time? And to believe, and if I believe that it was about believing a certain set of doctrines, wouldn't I be crazy to not consume myself with this? I feel the same way, by the way. They, it, their thinking is at least internally consistent. There's this book, it has the rules, and they're following the rules. So, all right. Um, are, are they bad people for following the rules? Well, social cultural mores have evolved over time. Deeply religious people are in denial of that. All right. But if you look at, you know, the things in Leviticus, half of the list, no one would do it today. Right. All right. You know, it's in Leviticus. Where is he? If your child is disrespectful, you have to stone them. Right. I mean, odds are that no one even at the time probably followed that command. Well, exactly. And there's a, a whole section on, on how to burn the head of a bull <laughs> so that the aromas are pleasing to the Lord. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're just things that as time moved on, you said, no, I'm not going to do that. No, that does not make sense. Mm -hmm. And it is a little odd to me that thou shalt not kill is not number one in the <laughs> commandments or two or three or four or five. That's a little odd to me, I would think. Just think. And mm -hmm. of course, secular laws has thou shalt not kill in a, in, in a sense. All right. So it has some of those, but the rest we're completely ignoring. Yeah. You know, uh, as, as a secular society. So... So we have rethought the rules and, you know, any, any reformed Jew does not send the woman out to a tent, you know, six days a month. Okay. <laughs> as During much as period. that might actually be wonderful. Okay. <laughs> that, that's not encoded in modern behavior of enlightened people. So to cherry pick what's written there and then invoke it, is uh, I, I've always felt was a little bit, uh, uh, I don't want to say unfair. Uh, I want to say it's... It's inconsistent. Yeah, the, the inconsistent. That's a that's a simpler, uh, better word for it. The, and I like living a consistent life mm -hmm. so that when I see inconsistencies, I, I, I have to point it out. Mm -hmm. And in, in that latest book, Cosmic Perspectives on Civilization, one of its goals is to find places where people are arguing with each other and then unpack their arguments and show, you know, you're not basing this on anything that's objectively true. Mm -hmm. So why are you so vehemently in support of this? You should at least soften your views so it corresponds with the limited evidence that um, at its foundation. So it's it's an exploration on a lot of topics that are there's a there's a chapter called uh, risk and reward where I talk about people can't really process statistics and probability in their head. Mm. Uh, there's entire industry that has arisen to exploit the fact that we can't process probability and statistics. And it's, they're called casinos. Wow. They exist <laughs> yeah. because we're bad at math. All right. Yeah. 
that this is okay. That's sad. That's it sad. It's sad that you can know the odds going in and still do right. it. Right. Right. That means you're not really feeling the odds. All right. Yeah. Right. So there's a chapter on gender and identity, on color and race, life and death, uh, risk and reward. As I said, there's all these chapters and they go places, but I bring cosmic insights and scientific rationality to that analysis and it's offered to the reader so i'm not mm-hmm. giving opinions or anything it's yeah. not now early you asked about my spirituality that word means a lot of different things to different people the trend from what i can see is people will say they're spiritual if they're not otherwise religious whether or not they believe in god but they feel there's something out there right. the, that's where i find the word spirituality to to be landing in these emerging times so in that regard i can say that when i'm on a mountaintop and i look up in the universe and i'm alone and i see clouds below me and because the mountaintop is above the, yeah. the lower cloud layer and i have my telescope this is this is a majestic moment and i'm feeling some connectivity to the cosmos that i'm not otherwise feeling just walking around on the rest of earth's surface so we can say this is a spiritual feeling i don't have a problem invoking the word in that context Mm. another spiritual notion is that the atoms of our bodies are traceable to stars that exploded and scatter that enrichment into gas clouds that birthed subsequent generations of stars Mm. so we're not just alive in this universe we contain the dust of stars we are stardust So not only are we alive in the universe, the universe is alive within us. And to me, that borders on the spiritual. It's a gift of modern astrophysics to civilization. Getting chills over here. (laughs) (laughs) The stardust and stuff. What do you think? Would anything change? Let's speculate. And what would change? If you could zoom every, let's just say America, every American up to, let's say, low Earth orbit for... Five no, minutes, no, let's, let's go minutes. to the moon. Go to okay, or low Earth orbit. Low Earth orbit is glorified high airplane ride. Okay. Um, go to the moon. Okay. The entire Earth is visible to you. From, from orbit, the entire Earth is not visible to you. You have that tweet where, was it Apollo 8? Where they, when they looked back at yes. the, the, the Earth rise? Only when you go to the moon do you get to look back. You go to the moon to explore the moon. And then they look back over their shoulders and they discovered Earth. For the first time. What did they do when they saw Earth for the first time? Do you remember the tweet? Okay. What, what, what was in the tweet? Did I, I what, think, what? I think you said they read Genesis. Oh, 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 the astronauts. Yeah. So the astronauts themselves are orbiting. There's more context to this. Okay. They are, Apollo 8 are the first humans to leave Earth for destination. Wow. All right. We'd been in orbit, boldly going where hundreds have gone before. We now go to the moon. They leave second week of December or something, third week of December. They are at the moon Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. And while they're orbiting the moon, they take turns reading the first 10 um, uh, lines of Genesis. There's three, three, and four lines read and shared among them. And that's what they felt looking Mm -hmm. at Earth from afar. I don't have a problem with that. There were some well-known atheists of the day who were ready to sue the government for mixing religion with tax-based expenditures. And my rebuttal to that, because I write about it in the book, I, I recount the whole story there, 
reproduce the lines of Genesis that are there. In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth, and the earth was out form and void. All that's there, okay? Uh, it was Marilyn Murray O'Hare, who's a leading atheist of the day, had brought the lawsuits. So then I imagined a conversation between me and Ms. O'Hare, and I say, uh, were you strapped to a million-ton rocket and launched a quarter million miles away and observed Earth rise over the lunar landscape for the first time ever witnessed by any human? Did, did that happen to you? <laughs> and her answer would be no. So my reply is, then shut the fuck up. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> I just, that would be my reply. Yeah. Because yeah. you you didn't feel that. That let people emote in whatever way matters to them. And they were searching for words that felt sacred enough to to attribute to the moment. I, I think that's a beautiful way to put it. That was their way to express what that moment meant to them. And I'm not going to take that away from them. A Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell looks at Earth the same way. It didn't happen to be Christmas Eve, but he looks at Earth and he says, this is as retold in an interview with Time Magazine, you develop an instant global consciousness, a people orientation, an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world and a compulsion to do something about it. Hmm. From out there on the moon, international politics looks so petty you want to grab a politician by the scruff of the neck and drag him a quarter million miles out and say, look at that, you son of a bitch. Amen. I'll give him that too. <laughs> that's what he felt. <laughs> yeah. That is a cosmic perspective. And that's the whole point of that next book, which you, mm. you didn't have in in your hand. A starry messenger cosmic perspectives on stuff. That's the one that's out right now. So if we could do that with every... American, take him to the moon. No, no, you just you, know, you need to do it for the leaders. Do it for the leaders. Just first. do it for the leaders. Put them all, all right. in a bus, magic school bus. Take them to the moon <laughs> and bring them back. And yeah, they'll be kissing and hugging hmm. all hmm. the way. Wow, that might be worth investing in. <laughs> um, you you wrote a few articles um of, a while ago on kind of the intersection of religion and science, and I found them very. Um, accurate to our experience, if you could elaborate a bit on why it is that holding too tightly to a kind of um, literal scientific religious, you know, Bible-based perspective, why that can be so limiting for scientists and why that's unhelpful going forward. Uh, let me let me say that slightly, that, like, fine, but let me word that slightly differently. Go for it. Any dogma no matter what it is, tends to limit your capacity to think outside of that dogma. Mm. Any dogma, doesn't matter. By the way, I can use a stronger word than dogma and say there are philosophies mm. that are very sure of themselves and limit your ability to think outside of those philosophies. Good scientists have no dogma. Good scientists have no philosophy so that anything that happens in front of them can be seen, measured, observed, absorbed, folded into the new idea that the universe might require for us to understand it. So, uh, yeah, if you 
are sure the universe is 6,000 years old because the Bible told you, and no other truth, no matter how it's established, will supplant that, then you can't be head of NASA. It's not going to work. You can't, the jobs in this world you that you were precluded from taking. Oh, by the way, we have famous some famous basketball players who are sure Earth was flat. <laughs> That's fine. Kyrie Irving, right? Yeah. Kyrie Irving among them. You can be a star basketball player and think Earth is flat. But you can't be head of NASA. Yeah. So for me, I don't want any opportunity to be closed off because I'm in denial of what it could be telling me. And so, yeah. So I don't want to value judge it, because in a free country, people should think and read and believe what they want. I'm just simply saying it doesn't work in the laboratory where you are exploring elements of nature that were never previously known or seen. Hmm. Yeah. Some of the families and former communities of our listeners and even some that I've encountered myself, you know, they'll say, I guess it's one of the one of the pushbacks from American Christianity <laughs> towards those who have either left it or to the scientific community would say, yeah, but science is always changing, right? Something that's true today, you know, quote unquote true today, that could change tomorrow when they discover something new. Okay, so so here's what you do. You say, is that their reason? Is that actually the reason? Because if it is the reason, it's false. So it's not a reason. Yeah. Okay. If that's your actual reason, it's not a reason because you misunderstand science. Okay. So ever since the era of experimental science, basically from 1600 onward with Galileo, Francis Bacon, and others, developing the methods and tools of experimental science where you don't just make stuff up if you have an idea you test it then you get someone else to test it and then someone else to test it if you get about the same results you're on to something experimentally verified science does not change period what does change is the stuff we're thinking up on the bleeding frontier that changes daily once there's agreement of observations, experiment, predictive power, all the, all the rest, then it goes into the textbook and you move on to the next problem. So tomorrow we will not discover that E equals MC cubed. <laughs> that is not going to happen. We're not going to find out tomorrow that the sun orbits the earth and not vice versa. That's not going to happen. We're not going to find out that pi, the digits of pi, were something other than what your calculator shows you. Was it South Carolina in 1932? They legislated that the value of pi equals 3.0. And you say, well, why would they do that? Well, because the value of pi in the Bible is 3.0. What? Yes, it is. Oh my gosh. I, I thought would... you guys knew the Bible. You don't know the Bible. <laughs> you said you know more about religion. Well, yeah, I told religion, you. Right? I, I'm not, I didn't say this to show so preach, off. I'm just, preach then. Three, the, I'm 3. Gonna, 3. I keep preach, Brother Tyson here. <laughs> so in 1 Kings 7, where there's a there's an, a very detailed description of King Solomon's 
palace, I guess. What did they call them back then? Uh, not his mansion, but his palace. He's palace, a king, palace. so he lives in a palace. A very detailed description, and it describes the pond out front. And the description is as follows. The pond is round on all sides, 30 cubits around, 10 cubits across. Mm. Those two measurements can only be true if pi equals 3.0. Oh, man. Because you get pi by dividing the circumference by the diameter. The circumference is 30, the diameter is 10, you get 3.0. The Bible could have shown us that it had some insights not yet discovered into geometry and trigonometry and, and, and the pi-verse by saying 31 cubits around, 10 cubits across. Then you'd at least get 3.1. <laughs> at least. Okay? Um, so that's an example. So they got it from the Bible. And now you can't... So bridges don't work if you have the wrong value of pi. And other fundamental calculations you're doing in science. So that's just uh, an example yeah. of places where... Uh, and a few other things. Uh, was it in... Is it in Job? I think it's in Job where uh, the power of God is questioned or the, the mm -hmm. intent of God is questioned. Mm -hmm. And I come confused. I might be confusing this with Abraham, but um, sorry, who's the one who sacrifices, who doesn't sacrifice his son? Abraham. Yeah. Well, Abraham. He, thank gets, you. he gets okay. close. <laughs> okay. He gets really close. So in one of those, forgive me for not remembering which. You're forgiven. God comes back and talks himself up. <laughs> All right. Oh, that's After, Job. That's Job. It's Job. Who made, okay. the, who made like, the stars? Who did, yeah, exactly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, who made the the the, the turn? Where were fly you south? when the or foundations uh, of the earth? When the were tides set. go in and out. It's a list. Yeah. Yep. And it's like God is throwing it down. All right. You don't know any of this, and I do. So it's a nice list. So you look at that and say, in modern times, how much of this do we understand without invoking divinity? And it's almost everything on the list. I think mm. a couple of things we don't know yet. But so you can look at it as in the day, science had not made those discoveries yet. So everything could easily be ascribed to divinity. But now we're there. We can predict with it. We can duplicate it. We can imitate it. How divine is it if we can do all of those things? It's not as much, not so much. Hmm. So that's, these are things to consider. Yeah. You referenced the the term the god of the gaps, which I had. I think they even maybe talked about that in my university. So credit to them, it was Christian University. But it's it's interesting. I mean, the the god of the gaps really is such an accurate way of putting it. This mindset that as soon as you hit something that you don't know and that seems unexplainable, especially to you know a layperson with no understanding of what science can or cannot really grasp, then then you just assume well this must be God. And for me, growing up. I mean, it still kind of boggles my mind today. I'm not a scientist. It was just this idea, like I was, you know, as I became more accepting of, okay, well, maybe there's some value to like evolution. Okay, maybe scientists aren't all just against the Bible or whatever. But I was still like, but where could any matter have come from? Like this bang, you know, in from nothing into everything. For me, that was like, therefore, like because this obviously can't be explained, it must have been God. Well, you're in good company because... If you look at Isaac Newton, he wrote down his equation of gravity, 
very successful. You describe moon going around Earth, Earth going around the sun, Jupiter satellites going around Jupiter, hmm. even before, um, you know, before anyone thought to do so to calculate that. And so very successful. But then he looked more carefully at his equations and realized that the entire solar system over enough, given enough time, would fly apart and go mm -hmm. unstable. Because as we came around the backside of the sun, as we came around the side of the sun where Jupiter was, Jupiter would be tugging on us just a little bit. Then we go around and come back and Jupiter would tug on us again. And this tugging would elongate our orbit and eventually kick us out of the solar system. This is the idea. So he wrote, uh, for the long-term evolution of the solar system, God must step in every now and then to correct mm. things. Mm. Because otherwise, I know everything works. That's a God of the gaps argument. He couldn't figure out how to stabilize the solar system. And so he invoked God, the hand of God, to fix it every now and then. A hundred years later, Laplace, a, a, a French mathematician, solves that problem, invents a, invents a branch of mathematics, uh, pioneers a branch of mathematics called perturbation theory, where it turns out even though you're close to Jupiter over here, you're much farther from Jupiter over here, and then there's a weakness to it, and it turns out all of these little tugs average out, turns out. Then he writes this book, it's called Celestial Mechanics, in French, Celeste Mechanique. Napoleon summons up the book, reads it, and said, uh, Monsieur Laplace, in the stability of the solar system, you make no mention of God. Harking back to, Gal to, to, to Newton. And he said, uh, Monsieur, I had no need for that hypothesis. So that's a god of the gaps evaporating hmm. it, it, in the face of advances in human understanding of mathematics and physics. Yeah. I think a lot of people, you know, maybe from our world or maybe people who are just starting to, you know, kind of unpack all of this and wanting to move forward, it, it feels threatening to them to because it feels like if God's not necessary in science, then what's the point of God at all? I mean, I don't know that I I don't feel that anymore, but I think a lot of people, I think I used to feel that. Um, and yeah, what would be your response to someone who's like, well, then what's the point of God? I mean, maybe it's just that. Well, there's an interesting saying. It goes something like, um, God gives meaning to your life, but only after religion convinces you that life has no meaning without God. Wow. Oh, man. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So then, okay, what would you say what, as, as someone who would you, how have you derived meaning for your life? So meaning, I, I think I, I can only speak for myself, but I may apply to others that meaning somehow, somewhere, someone trained us to think meaning is something you search for. I'm, a, I'm on a quest for meaning. Well, maybe you have the power to manufacture meaning <laughs> in your own life. For me, I manufacture meaning. Uh, that's in, in one of the chapters of the book is life and death. And in there, I describe this. I manufacture meaning by learning something today that I didn't know yesterday mm. and somehow lessening the suffering of others. Mm. The, those are the two drivers that give meaning to my life. If you don't otherwise think about creating meaning in your life, then you are susceptible 
to whatever else is out there that you do not control. Hmm. And so, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think about it beyond that. Yeah. I want to rapid fire through some of my off the wall questions, if that's okay. Sure. sure. <laughs> that's the point in the interview we're at. And feel free to change these. I like how you change questions and make them better. Yeah, I don't know if it's disrespectful, but I think it's, it's not very my respectful. Okay. <laughs> because people don't always ask the best questions. Mm -hmm. Should we care about what happens when we die, or can we just not help caring about it? Uh, the people who fear death, they, I think they fear death because they're born knowing only life. But to fear death, well, Consider that if you fear death, you don't want to die. But if you don't fear death, then death is as natural as living. And uh, when I, I, have, I have a lot of thoughts when I die. One of them is I want uh, on my tombstone a quote from Horace Mann, who said, be ashamed to die until you have won some victory for humanity. Hmm. So that's what I want there. And... Also, is there any reason to think, other than a religious text, is there any reason to think that your state of existence in death is any different from your state of non-existence before birth? Before you were born, you say, where am I? How come I'm not on earth yet? What am I doing? You just, there's no awareness of anything. And so now you have... You're alive, and so you have, but then you die, your brain functions cease. Why believe that that's any different from how it all started? Hmm. That probably should make me feel better, it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's also, for some reason, when I was just sitting there thinking about that, the void of non-existence. I know. I think I, in my gut, I'm like, I, I still want to exist, you know? I don't, I don't want to just... Yeah disappear but i don't know if that's just selfish or yes it's uh, entirely selfish <laughs> <laughs> make room go. for somebody else uh makes sense makes sense in the future how likely is it that we could go back in time and see if jesus really rose from the dead this is a time travel question right so i think about this all the time and i said suppose i do go back in time oh, by the way i was in a in a car in i think it was in orlando and the driver is a car service. He heard that I was a scientist, but didn't fully know all my work. But he wanted to, he asked me about evidence. And he says, so as a scientist, you need evidence for things, right? I say, yeah, yeah. And he says, well, what about the evidence for Jesus's resurrection? And I said, well, what evidence are you referring to? And he said, well, the guards that were positioned outside. And I said, first of all, uh, we know in modern understanding of the human mind that eyewitness testimony is some of the worst testimony you could possibly put forward. There's those 9-11 accounts, right, where someone describes their day and they're Correct. wearing a completely different thing, completely Correct. different set of Correct. events. Yeah. Correct. So that's, so that's just be cautious of that. Yeah. But beyond that, I told him they were not witnesses to Jesus's resurrection. And he said, yes, they are. I said, no, they weren't. Go read the Bible. They were asleep. Right, right, right. So all they saw was, well, depends on the account, but some shining light 
And I mean, all they are attested to have seen, which these documents, you know, they were written decades later anyway. Okay, so. now there are multiple versions, right? Mm -hmm. the, so the one I'm remembering, uh, I mean, you know, there's the, the apostles give their accounts. The one I'm remembering is they did not, the guards were asleep. They wake up, the stone is shifted, and the body's not there. Right, exactly. That's all. Shelby, you just mentioned, though, how many years later were these written? I mean, the, this, the earliest would have been probably 30 to 40 years later in the Which latest. Which is, I think that's important, too, right? That's right, really right. So here. 40 years later, when um, when memory is as sharp as ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so my, my point is, even without reference to eyewitness testimony, the very Bible itself, I don't, I think all the accounts agree, at least on this point, that the guards were asleep. They did not see the resurrection. Okay. So you can't use them as any kind of evidence for the resurrection if they were asleep. That's, That's interesting. My only I've, point. I've never really noticed before what you're saying there, though. I mean, there are, you know, they have accounts of, of people who like interact, but they have accounts of people interacting with some version of Jesus after his death. But you're right that there's no one who actually That's witnesses. That's not the resurrection. The right, resurrection is no the one who witnesses him. the act of Correct. resurrection. That's Correct. so interesting. That didn't happen like right, and everyone's not watching this happen. It's two sleep, two dudes who are asleep. You can go find, can you find it? I think it's you have a Matthew Bible in front of you? 28. Okay. Where it describes the guards. Here we go. No, here we go. Here we go. His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. That's their quote. So this is Matthew 28, 13. So this driver, who also said he was a pastor at a church, did not know that. And because to him, they were eyewitnesses. If you're asleep, you're not an eyewitness. <laughs> And so, so remember I said at the beginning, whatever I know of the Bible or your religious book, it's more than you know of my science, okay? And in some cases, it might be more than you know. Again, I don't claim perfect knowledge of all the nooks and crannies, but I know enough places to dip in to have a conversation, a meaningful conversation with someone. Rather, I don't believe any of that. I don't know. Have you read it? Well, not really. No, that's not a conversation. That's uh we're on opposite sides of a fence, and we're not even going to try to dismantle it. So, um, but what was my, what started this? Sorry, I, I've lost track. Uh, how likely could we go back? Is it that we could go back and... Oh, yeah. Uh, so I think to time. myself, if I had a time machine, uh, would I observe the events described in the Bible of the accounts of Jesus? And I, my answer is no, I wouldn't. Because suppose I go to it, and then there are some thieves who stole the body, and it was not the spirit of God through through a beam of light. What am I going to do with this information? Just think about it. What am I? I'm going to come back today and say, look, guys, this is all. Especially since the entire foundation of religion is faith. This is the whole point. All right. If if you needed evidence to support what you believe, we would call it fact. We have Science. another word for it if you needed. <laughs> incontrovertible evidence so to run around looking for evidence for your faith then uh, if you if if you're really going to do that then how open are you to all the other evidence you've been ignoring so far hmm. the wow. evidence for a 14 billion year old universe are, are you sweeping that under the rug but you want to accept possible so let's take a look at the shroud of turin mm -hmm. okay in recent years shown to be a forgery 
a brilliant forgery, though, but a forgery nonetheless. Wow. But let's assume it wasn't a forgery, and or or we didn't know it was a forgery. And you see the imprint of Jesus there with the beard and the, the it's gaunt the, the face. cloth that was supposedly over his yeah, the, face. The burial when he cloth, resurrected. which is a traditional for Jewish burial of that of precisely that kind, because of course Jesus was Jewish, and so as we occasionally need to remind some Christians. So, so, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so you would say, well, this imprint on the cloth is, is the, the Holy spirit and the, the energy of his body resurrecting out of the cloth without having to unfold the cloth. And this is sort of the, 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 the record of that. Okay. And so, then you say, and we we can show that a, a, a strong beam of light will make this kind of an imprint on the cloth. Okay. Um, and you're a religious person, and this is working for you. Really? Okay. So you like that evidence. <laughs> you like that. Okay. How about all the other evidence that conflicts with practically scientific evidence that conflicts with practically everything else in the Bible? Oh, no, no, but I, that's faith. So so my point is, and I don't want to tell religious people how to be religious, but if you're really going to be religious, don't try to find science that supports what you're doing mm -hmm. because you will have to cherry pick it to make that happen mm. because most of the science does not support, especially what unfolds in Genesis, okay? Yeah. Oh, just, yeah. just, I'm just saying, so just, just if and I enlightened religious people don't use their... Bible is a science textbook. They just don't. Right. They use it as a source of wisdom or inspiration. And we talk about this all the time on the show, but just, you know, that is not how the authors meant it to be used. You know, well, I think yeah, I'm not even going to go there. I'm, <laughs> I'm not even going to go there. I'm not going to claim I know what the authors were thinking. I'm not even going to claim that because that's your version of Christianity. Okay. Their version of Christianity is this is the word of God through the hand and the mind of the authors. And that is the truth. So, you you settled in your own interpretation that left you comfortable with the scripture. And I'm saying everybody can do that and has done that. Hmm. All right. So they have a comfort level with it. And I'm coming from the outside of all of that saying, I don't care where you land, but I do know that if you're going to start claiming science supports it, at some point you're going to have to deny the science that does yeah. not support it. Mm. Sure, and that's a very slippery slope. There are even people who are looking for the star of Bethlehem, you know. Mm. And, and there was like a planetary conjunction where more two or three or more objects are in the sky together, but that wouldn't have been interpreted as a single star, not by any educated person, which we think the three wise men were. Uh, and so we don't really have anything there. Mm. And so maybe it was divine. Okay, that's fine. But if you're going to try to find something in the actual historical records, again, you're trying to find evidence to support your beliefs. Hmm. If they're authentic beliefs, you don't need evidence. Yeah. And I'm not even going to fault you for that. We live in a country that constitutionally protects the free expression of religion. And like I said, enlightened religious people are not going to the Bible for their science. Mm -hmm. Neither did Thomas Jefferson. Uh, do you know about the Jefferson Bible? Yeah. Oh, it was uh, it was berated in my upbringing, but now I think, oh, you know, I kind of see where he was coming from. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's titled The Wisdom of Jesus of Nazareth, okay? Something mm -hmm. like that. Or the, the Life and Morals 
of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what he titled it. And physically cut out with scissors Mm -hmm. and then glued back onto a page, cut out every mythical, magical, miracle feat of Jesus, leaving behind his morals and his wisdom. That's a Jefferson Bible. And so I assert that enlightened religious people take more that tact, not trying to stand in denial of science or whatever, or they're not going there. To them, the Bible is a source of inspiration and guidance for living and maybe guidance for dying. Hmm. And so, of course, you have to cherry pick that as well. But still, yeah. if it works for them, I, I don't have a problem with it. Yeah. Uh, and so I also, there's one other point. There's the assertion that we are a Christian nation. This is an objectively false statement. Yeah. It's a very, I want it to be true. <laughs> I think it's true and I want it to be true, so I'll declare it as such. It is an objectively false declaration about the United States, okay? Our Constitution makes no mention of God. That fact alone, controversial in its day, but everybody else's Constitution in the world is talking about God. Ours does not. It makes one very minor mention of God. Do you know where that is? Oh, oh, oh. Uh... No, you're not going to get it. Oh, okay. You're not going to get it. Anno Domini, 1789. <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's the only mention of God, okay? The because year. they're using the Julian calendar based on Jesus, whatever. Okay, so um, uh, there's another thing that's hardly ever talked about. Was it 1804? There were wars over in the oceans between European nations and Islam. Okay, they're basically holy wars. And this was greatly disrupting trade that the United States wanted to conduct with our, our trading partners overseas. Because the, the Muslim community wanted to attack us just the way they wanted to attack um, uh, England and France and 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 um, Portugal, Spain, and so in the Treaty of Tripoli, which was drafted principally by um, John Adams, who wrote our Constitution, primarily wrote our Constitution. That treaty, which is written by him, ratified by Congress. It is a treaty between us and the Muslims. And it says, unlike these other people, you are, these other nations you are fighting, we under no conditions are a Christian nation. <laughs> wow. That's what it's, I, I paraphrase, but that's almost exactly what it says. Don't wow. confuse us with Spain, but it's being driven by a pope and God and, and, and the Christian God. That is not us. Hmm. You can trade with us. This is the kind of evidence that says we're not a Christian nation because it actually says that. Yeah. And it's funny because they didn't, hadn't settled on a spelling of what it is to be Muslim at the time. So it, uh, it was the followers of, of, of uh, Muhammad. The, the spelling is not quite uh, exact yet, but it's clearly what's going on in this treaty and, wow. and what they're talking about. So uh, yes, what would I say to a room of 
fundamental fundamentalists? Yeah, what would you say? I'm curious to a room of full of just fundamentalist Christians, conservative Christians in America yeah, I, right okay, now. Okay, I would I'd have one message. I'd say try hard. I know it'll be hard for you. Try hard to not put your Christian rules of life into laws and legislation that affect people who are not Christian. Hmm. Yeah. Try not to do that. Because, for example, you want to put the Ten Commandments in the thing. The Ten Commandments appear in the Old Testament. That is a doc, a religious document that is followed by Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Okay? That's a religious document. You want to try to say that we, the people can't be gay, and you're going to cite, or they can't cross-dress. You're going to cite passages. In Deuteronomy, it's very clear. The, thou shall, a man shall not don the clothes of a woman, or woman the clothes of a man, lest this be an abomination unto the Lord thy God. This was used against Joan of Arc in the trial of Joan of Arc, wow. because she was dressed like a man. That was like nearly half the case against her, by the way. All right. Wow. It's clear in the Bible, okay? Try to resist making laws of the state that capture rules of your religion. Hmm. Because we are a democracy, and laws have to apply to everyone. And if everyone is not fundamentalist, not everyone is Christian, and certainly not everyone is fundamentalist Christian, you are asserting your laws upon them. The danger here is, if a some other religious community moves into town and they outvote you, they will start putting their religious rules into play, which would then require that you follow their religion. One of the greatest features of this country is that our constitution makes no reference to a religion. Hmm. Doesn't mean it doesn't like religions. There's reference to religion in the First Amendment that we cannot stop you from practicing your religion, provided your religion doesn't subtract rights from others. Okay? We can't stop you. And the only way we can't stop you is to not declare a religion. Mm-hmm. That omission was not just, oh, we forgot. That omission was brilliant. Hmm. Allowing all religions to escape prosecution of their thinking in whatever country they were in. And they could come here. And only in America, I think, can you have a row of buildings and one of them is a mosque, one of them is a synagogue, one of them is a Catholic church, one of them is a Baptist. You've got all of these. And there's a there's a Scientology's down the block. Uh, all of this in America, that's something to be cherished mm-hmm. about who and what we are. Because the government is not telling you what religion to follow. I guess the reality is you can't have freedom of religion and be a Christian nation. Thank you for summarizing. (laughs) (laughs) Shall be GPT. Yeah. Next (laughs) time. uh, Yeah. Thank you. Next time. That's what I'll say. That that is, that is the only message I can think to bring to conservative Christian, uh, Americans uh, to, 
yeah. to fundamentalist mm -hmm. Christian conservative. That's the message I would bring. Yeah. I think it's needed, uh, very needed. We need to fly him up to the moon, apparently, all the way to the moon. And Do we some of that, too. That no, message, what I might also right? say, I would say, um, why are you trying to change the curriculum in my science classroom yeah. to match your religion? Like, why are you doing that? Because I don't go to your Sunday school and tell your instructors what to teach there. I don't pick it outside your church and say, that might not necessarily be true. This is a sacred place. Yeah. The church, the community church. I don't want to say my science class is a sacred place, but it's a place where we're teaching science. Yeah. Let the science be the science. I don't mind teaching religion, but put a, get, get a religion class. You can learn religion in the religion class. But to put religion in the science class, that's not fair. Yeah. Because I'm not doing that to you. Yeah. And I'm in the interest of fairness. That's another message I would give. I would give fundamentalist conservative Christians. Yeah. You know, you mentioned earlier you want your tombstone to say that you contributed to society, right? I don't remember the beautiful quote you shared, but you want you totally to totally mangled that quote. <laughs> you want you want to leave a mark on society. You Achieve want to have left something. something. Oh yeah, I can't remember. No, just, just let the world be better off for you having mm -hmm. lived in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's all. Well, I yeah. think you've already accomplished that goal, but I hope you accomplish it many more times over. Okay. Well, thank you. And I'm happy to talk to you a little bit about the Bible. <laughs> Just a couple it. of passages. The value of it. pi. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Also, there's no reference to a spherical earth anywhere in the Bible. Mm. Um, there's one place where it's earth is referred to as a circle. Yeah. And mm -hmm. all maps of earth drawn pre-Columbus, it's a circle, usually with Jerusalem in the middle. So we know what a circle is, and it's not a sphere. Yeah. So the idea that, oh, the Bible knew the earth was a sphere, no, it didn't. Neither did anybody else in the day. Yeah. So just be honest about this. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah. 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 I love it. Well, thank you, Neil, for uh, for coming on the show. We really appreciate your time. Uh, thanks for your interest. I'm very happy to chat all about on all those topics with you. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.